0: Hi, you handsome. Come to join the
1: party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where you can't, you won't, and you don't stop crying. So grab your jello shots and your DD, and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about parentification. I just learned about this in the last couple of years, but when I read about what it is and how it works, I was like, oh shit, (laughs) that's definitely me. So let's just start with a working definition of what it is in case people aren't familiar. This is what I found from a little old internet search. In emotionally healthy families, parents recognize that their role involves caring for a child meeting for the child's, sorry, meeting the child's developmental needs, helping a child to build new skills, and supporting individuation and separation from the family. However, it didn't say the however, I put that in. However, within families characterized by parentification, the emotional emphasis shifts to the parent's physical and psychological needs, which typically result in children operating at a level far beyond their developmental capacity. Parentified children are usually exposed to issues that they cannot fully comprehend, like substance abuse or mental health issues. They may be required to manage problems that feel scary or are too complex for a child to manage, may be required to place their own needs aside in an attempt to care for a parent, or may feel responsible for a parent's well-being. Sometimes parentified children are praised for these behaviors and are seen by their own parents and other adults as being mature or wise for their age. Parentification can involve a range of behaviors from the overt, like making children engage in physical tasks that typically fall to adults in the family. Shout out to my sister for <sighs> literally babysitting me starting when she was five years old. I have very clear memories of my sister standing on a chair that she pulled from the kitchen table in order to cook bacon she like couldn't reach the stove but she was like standing on a chair anyway thanks q okay making children engage in physical tasks that typically fall to adults in the family like cooking and cleaning caring for siblings or caring for the parent themselves to the settler confiding in a child in a manner that's not age-appropriate seeking emotional support from a child, seeking advice from children, using children as mediators or buffers in adult relationships, or involving them in family conflicts. Equally, expecting a child to maintain and hold family secrets, for example, a parent with alcohol addiction, such that they cannot seek support for themselves, places them within a parentified role. Sometimes this involves a form of emotional incest where the child is being treated emotionally as an intimate partner to the parent. Perhaps the parents were unhappy in their own marriage or dissatisfied with their lives. They might tell the children about their frustrations, cry excessively, complain about their relationships, or even hurt themselves in front of the child. Children of narcissistic parents often report that they felt like they needed to be perfect and a reflection of their parents' success as a parent. And these children often carried the weight of maintaining their parents' fragile self-esteem. This is a subtle form of parentification as a child takes on the task of supporting and maintaining their parents' psychological integrity, which is an adult task. Parentification is a form of emotional abuse But because it is an invisible form of abuse, it can be especially toxic and insidious. So yeah, not chill, in other words. To help us understand parentification, how it works, how it affects us in adulthood, and how we heal, I'm so happy to welcome licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist, Amanda ichihashi Yeagerman. Hi, Amanda. Welcome. Did I say your name right?
0: You did, Remy. You nailed it. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. I'm so happy to be here. Palms are a little sweaty, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm so pumped to be here. <gasps>
1: Yay. Oh, my God. I'm so excited to have you. And uh, sweaty palms and all. We love a little sweaty palm. Uh, and to get us started, tell me a little bit about your astrology.
0: Sure. I am a Leo Sun. And a Capricorn moon, which I am, you know, always coming to terms with, and I'm a Pisces (laughs) rising. So this full moon coming up in a few days, Pisces, yeah, I'm, I was like, oh, I'm going to feel some big feels.
1: Oh my God. Well, I mean, I'm assuming having a Pisces rising, you're accustomed to feeling big feels, but yes, this is going to be a, a very, um, powerful moon for you but i think capricorn moon um you know i think it makes a lot of sense for people who work as therapists and who work in the kind mm-hmm. of line of work that you do because capricorn likes to organize mm-hmm. and the moon is your emotions and so it's a way of kind of creating organization around something that can be very chaotic and i actually like i actually think that's really valuable and really powerful i think that like That's kind of what therapy is, right? It's like us kind of making sense of these things that are really messy and painful and kind of make us Mm -hmm. feel like we're all over the place. It's like, let's create some containers for this.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't know if that resonates. It does. It does. And, you know, now that I, Have my own private practice. I think that Capricorn Moon really helps me to be a boss ass bitch. Yes. Fuck
1: yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm stoked to get into this. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm gonna start by going into my experience on the topic. And while I'm doing that, feel free to jump in with thoughts, feelings, movie quotes, or you know, you can just hang out, do Wordle if you want, whatever feels good. And then at the end already did it. Already did it. Okay. Don't tell me because I haven't done it yet. Okay. okay. (laughs) Okay. And then at the end, I'll turn back over to you with questions. How does that sound?
0: That sounds great.
1: Okay, cool. Okay, here we go. Well, I'm going to take a big breath because I wrote a lot. Okay. When I think about parentification, I immediately think of my mom. My dad was a lot of things, had a lot of problematic behaviors, but I think probably because he was so emotionally shut down, parentification just wasn't really his jam. He was an addict, is, he's still alive. And, you know, like I was in there in elementary school and middle school. So I definitely felt like I had to keep a secret about his drug use. I also definitely saw him come home after like binging for days and like, uh, you know, he would just kind of disappear for like four or five days and he would be so drunk that he couldn't stand up or like one time he came home after being gone for, four or five days and he was so high that he and he was like he comes home after you know kind of disappearing and he's like talking to me about how to beat a super hard mario brothers level and like talking a mile a minute and it was like obviously he you know was really high and i could barely understand what he was saying also one time like he must have been high i don't know what was going on but He started talking to me with this like deep seating anger about how people treated Jesus, which was odd because my dad wasn't religious at all, but it was just really bizarre. And, um, you know, I was like 10 or something, but he wasn't sharing personal details with me. That just like, wasn't something my dad ever did. My mom, on the other hand, was deep into this behavior. And I'll preface by saying that my mom suffers from her own mental health struggles. And if you feel me on that, then you kind of probably know some of what I'm about to say, but I want to say that in part, because that's often a key player in parentification from what I understand mentally unwell, parents do put a lot of their emotional distress on their children and that is abuse, right? So, so what did it look like? I've talked about this several times on the pod, but such a clear parentification moment that it certainly bears repeating. I remember being four or five, my sister was six or seven and my, and this is kind of when it started, but that I remember, but my mom would have these meltdowns and sob and ask us, why doesn't anyone love me? Why doesn't any man want to be with me? Why can't I find a husband? Why doesn't your father love us? Which also, by the way, including me, and in that was like very Shocking. I mean, I wasn't close with my dad, but I was was like, what? He doesn't. (laughs) But I remember, you know, these episodes were really distressful for me. I, I would crawl into her lap and say, mom, I love you. I would be your husband. If I could, I'll take care of you. The feeling that I had was that it was my job to fix my mom's pain because it was too much for me to bear. And it also made me feel like God didn't love us, you know, like God didn't love our family because I saw other families and they had dads, their moms weren't sobbing. Of course, maybe they were behind closed doors, who knows, but from what I could tell, like why had God who I'd learned about at Sunday school been so generous with those families, but so withholding from my family. So this also sort of kicked off my struggle with spirituality and with believing that I was loved by the universe. My mom was also a single mom. My dad was sort of around, but he never paid child support. And that was something we heard about a lot. The fact that we didn't have any money, uh, the fact that my dad had abandoned us financially and in all these, you know, other ways, the fact that he cheated on her, um, You know, the fact that my mom was struggling so much to keep a roof over our heads to the point where I was really afraid that we were going to be homeless when I was growing up. I was constantly scared of us losing our house and having to live on the streets. My mom also would expect us to sort of be on her side when it came to the rage she had toward my dad. We left Texas and moved to L.A. when I was eight, and I don't know if it was Because my mom was under so much financial stress in LA, but suddenly there was this major lashing out toward him that happened when I was like maybe nine. So like when we lived in Austin, you know, she would take us to his gig. Sometimes he's a musician and every once in a while he would come over to make us dinner or something when she was at work, like they were cordial. It wasn't, it wasn't great. You know, it's kind of icy, but they were cordial. Suddenly we're in LA, I'm nine. And my mom was telling us things like, your father doesn't love us. Your father abandoned us. Your father doesn't pay child support. And I remember she asked us directly, you don't want to have anything to do with him, right? Which had never happened before. And I I remember like nodding in agreement because I could tell that was the right answer. But I really wanted a relationship with my dad. And I remember that the next time he called the house, I picked up. And was talking to him, but was like trying to hide that it was him. But she figured it out. And she picked up the line from another phone in the house. This was the 90s when that's how phones worked. And she was like, Remy, we don't want to talk to your dad, remember? And I, I you know, I just was like, oh, yeah. And I hung up the phone. And, you know, I got in trouble when I got off. It, it was really hard for me because I, I was a child. And I wanted a relationship with both my parents deeply, you know, but it was clear. My mom was asking me to choose. And I remember when my mom, I mean, it wasn't even a choice. It wasn't like you get to choose. It was like, it's not happening. You're not, you hate your dad. That's, that's the choice. And I remember when my mom, um, a couple of years later, she bought a house in Austin We were still living in LA and she, she bought this house and then she invited my dad over to see it and hang out with her. And they apparently had this lovely time sitting on the porch talking. And I was secretly really mad. Like I was happy that the conflict had apparently ended, which by the way, it hadn't really, (laughs) but I was mad that she had forced us to be a part of that conflict when, you know, just a couple of years later, it was like a complete flip-flop and she would continue to flip-flop. And in those moments, there was sort of this, like, yeah, this expectation that whatever stance she had in the moment, we were going to be aligned with it. And I, and I felt like a, a pawn by the time I was 10 years old. I also knew many of the details of the abuse my mom experienced in her childhood. I knew about the mental abuse The physical abuse, the sexual abuse that happened in her family. I knew about being um, sexually assaulted outside of her family. And of course, like at the time, I didn't see that as problematic in any way. I felt proud that my mom had confided in me and I put her on a pedestal as a survivor and this like badass feminist who beat the odds, which I want to make sure I say also is a part of her story, right? For sure. But I didn't see that her sharing all that information with me at the time was not age appropriate to the point that we had to give a speech in the sixth grade about who our hero was. (laughs) And I got up and to the horror of the whole class and my teacher told them the story of my mom and why she was my hero, right? Because of like XYZ abuse and, you know, that she experienced as a kid and because of the sexual assault and because my father didn't pay her any child support and basically just like totally unaware, made it clear that my mom had been telling me a child, all of these details about her life. And like, then I was revealing all of this very much not age appropriate stuff to all the, all of these other like 10 and 11 year olds. Also, uh my sister and I used to sleep with my mom probably till we were like 13 or so, which admittedly is kind of weird, but I you know, there was no sexual uh anything happening to be clear, but I can't really remember why that was happening, can't remember why we were doing that. Um like if I wanted that or my mom wanted it, so I don't really want to comment on that. But either way, on one of these nights, it was my sister's turn to sleep with her. But my mom wanted to sleep with me. And I remember it was like hurtful to my sister or something like I was being chosen and I was standing in the hallway about to go into my mom's room to go to bed. And my mom, who was standing next to me, yelled out to my sister, no one understands me like you do, which I think was supposed to make my sister feel better, like sort of, um, console her that she wasn't going to be the one sleeping with my mom that night. But of course, it made me feel kind of shitty and competitive, (laughs) like, wait, I want to be the one who understands her the best. And then now, of course, looking back on it, there's this third piece, you know, where I'm realizing it was this setup, right? Although I don't think it was intentional on my mom's part per se, but that kind of thing was setting us up to be really focused in on her. The message was, it's your job to understand me your mother. And when you do, that's when you're being a good daughter. And that's when you will receive love. When actually the message should have been, it's my job to seek to understand you and comfort you. And again, these things are so subtle that they don't like scream abuse, you know, especially when we're kids. And that's why it's so easy to to miss them and to not understand why we struggle so much as adults. There were also sort of odd moments. And even now I don't know quite how to characterize or categorize something like this, but I remember when I was 12, I was on the pom-pom squad at school and they'd asked us, everyone on the team to come up with choreography for our routine. And then whoever did had to audition what they'd come up with and then whichever moves the captains like best they put in the routine. Well, I auditioned some moves and they liked them and put them in the routine. And I was so fucking excited. And I remember my mom picked me up from practice and I got in the car and I was just like gushing. I told her all about it. And suddenly my mom got this sad look on her face and she said, you're the kind of girl I always wished I could be when I was your age. And it was such a palpably painful moment. And suddenly, instead of feeling excited about what I'd accomplished, I felt grief for my mom's childhood, which, you know, I knew all the details of by the time I was that age. I was like, you know, 12 or 13 then. I I can't remember what I said to her. I can't remember if I comforted her or what, but I just remember that I felt like sort of ashamed that I'd had this happy moment when my mom had had so many sad ones. So it's just another one of those instances when rather than give me what I needed in that moment, the tables were turned and I was sort of being called on to comfort her and address her pain. I have another memory. I think I was also 12 in this one and I was helping my mom make dinner. I was peeling a carrot and I missed and I peeled the top of my finger And I was stunned, of course, (laughs) and I turned around and showed my mom and she started freaking out, like hyperventilating and screaming type freaking out. And I immediately started saying, don't worry, mom. It's okay. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. To which my mom responded, oh, it's going to hurt. It's about to start hurting. So (laughs) here I was really trying to calm my mom down and fix this moment for her, even though I was looking at my own finger bone and I remember that as she was bandaging me, I was saying to her, even though, yeah, I mean, it did hurt. And I was also really freaked out. I was saying, look, mom, I can still smile. See? And I was smiling and like making sure I didn't cry because I wanted her to feel safe and to calm down. Physically, my mom took care of me in that moment, but emotionally, the focus was totally on her. The last moment I'll share is something that happened once when I was 15. This wasn't something I saw often. It was actually just the one time that it happened, but it was really scary and confusing. And I didn't realize what this moment really was until I was reading about parentification. I can't remember too many of the details, but I, re- I do remember that my mom came into my room after she'd been at a party And at the party, I think she'd said something that she immediately realized was a faux pas or something. Those details are kind of muddy. I don't don't really remember the exact thing that instigated this. But anyway, whatever it was, she felt ashamed or embarrassed or something like that. And she came into my room sobbing and saying she was never going to be okay. And actually, that was something she said a lot. She said that to me throughout my childhood, like, I'm never going to be okay. I'm never going to be okay. And she would like cry. And on this night, she was saying that and sobbing. And I was telling her, no, it's okay. You're going to be fine. And suddenly she slapped herself really hard and started saying, I'm fucked up. I'm fucked up. I just remember feeling this intense sense of grief and powerlessness, Uh, which actually that feeling of powerlessness was so prominent for me as a child, not just because I couldn't manage my mom's instability and her emotional eruptions, which brought me so much anxiety, but also because I couldn't fix her pain, which brought me into a state. It was sort of like perpetual despair, like her telling me I'm never going to be okay created this sense in me early on that the world could never be okay because my mom was never going to be okay. And when you're a child, your mom is essentially your world. You know, when I was a little girl crawling into her lab, I really thought I could do all the right things to make her pain stop. But by the time I was a teenager, it was clear that nothing I did would make any difference for her pain. And that sense of defeat, it followed me into adulthood. And it made me feel like my attempts to fix things, just all things beyond my mom, were futile. I felt depressed and defeated before I even got to 20 years old. So on that note, let's talk a little bit about how parentification affected me in a bigger picture. I have this memory of being 10. I'd gone back to Texas to stay with my dad and his girlfriend. And my dad's girlfriend asked me if I wanted to go on a walk with her, which I did. So we were walking and after a few minutes, she noticed that I was limping and she was like, what's going on? Why are you limping? And I said, oh, well, like nine months ago, I got these new shoes and they were too narrow and they rubbed on the side of my foot and this thing grew on my foot and it hurts when I walk. It was a full blown, massive corn on my foot. And it was so painful that I couldn't walk for more than a few minutes before I started limping. I'd had it for almost a year and not only had neither of my parents ever noticed it, but it had literally never occurred to me to tell them. Like the thought just didn't cross my mind. When you're a child raised around the idea that your parents' emotional needs are primary and yours are secondary, and you're worried about making them angry or overwhelming them, you start to learn to just get really quiet when you need help. And that would follow me into adulthood for sure. This feeling that I couldn't take up space by telling the people in my life what I was going through if I thought it would be a burden for them. I had to stay really quiet and really small anytime I was in pain. No one could know. It created this sense that essentially, unless I was cheerful, I was a problem. Another effect was a total inability to hold anyone accountable. That was so out of the question growing up because doing that, like telling my parents they had upset me or anything, you know, adjacent to that upset them deeply and, uh, often ended up, you know, with me being in trouble. And I was super tuned into their emotions because that was how I got love I did not get love for being like, hey, your behavior kind of sucks for me. Like that was absolutely not okay and did not give me the results that I wanted. So as a young adult, I transferred that into all my relationships. I assumed I wasn't allowed to hold anyone responsible. And that invited a lot of people into my life who were really into not being held responsible. I remember being honestly probably 29, like very close to 30 And my mom and my sister were in a big fight. And my mom and I were talking about it. Of course, that's also its own unhealthy thing. I think they call it triangulation, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, why, right? Like, why was I involved in that? (laughs) But anyway, I remember that I knew the thing that really needed to be said was yeah, she's mad because of the abuse that happened when we were kids. But the idea of even implying to my mom that she'd been abusive was so far off the table because this was where my head was at because it would hurt my mom too much to know that she had abused us. I was so invested in my role as the protector of my mom and protector of her feelings that I was worried that talking about the way that she had abused us would hurt her. My feelings weren't even part of the equation at all. And even then, you know, like, I didn't know about complex PTSD or parentification or any of those things. I just thought that there were a few moments that I could think of that were abusive. And I remember thinking, but that's okay because she was in so much pain because of her childhood. So she really couldn't help but abuse us. Like all the focus was on understanding her, understanding her pain and protecting her feelings as an adult this has shown up for me so big in my romantic relationships. Like I'll be dating someone who is very obviously not able or willing to give me what I need emotionally, but I will make excuses for it up and down using their childhood abuse as the reason. Like, oh, but his dad did X, Y, Z to him when he was a kid and he has abandonment issues. So he's just avoidant. And, and, And so I just need to show him more love so that he feels safe to open up or whatever the story is right. Like I basically have accepted unacceptable behavior because these people I was dating had experienced abuse at some point in their life. And meanwhile, my needs are not getting met and I'm not happy. It's essentially just a do-over of my childhood. My parents' abusive behavior was okay because they'd been abused. So not only could I not hold them accountable, I actually had to stuff my needs down so that I could show up for them and give them whatever they needed because they were so wounded. That was the pattern. But as an adult, that's not the move for me anymore. Like I have compassion for what people have been through to a point. If the expectation is that they be able to consistently not give me what I need and that my needs take a back seat, then that's where I draw the line. Whether a person was abused or not, or is hurting or not, like my needs in the relationship matter. But it took me a really, really long time to get there. I will say it's probably only been in the last couple of years that I've been able to shift that. And and when I was really young the way this, and by really young, I mean like a teenager dating or early twenties, the way that this showed up for me a couple of times was telling people I really didn't want to be in a relationship with, that I did want to be with them because they wanted to be with me and I didn't want to hurt their feelings. Their feelings were the most important thing. And also my experience had been that hurting my parents' feelings led to me being in trouble and I didn't want to be in trouble right? Like here I am with dating these guys and I'm like, Ooh, how do I not, how do I avoid conflict? Right? So I just lied. And that was really painful for them because I wasn't being honest and my words and my actions weren't in alignment and it was fucking confusing for them and hurtful. So that's been another aspect of this that I've struggled with. Um, You know, this, this like walking on eggshells around other people's emotions, I had to make sure I never hurt or upset anyone, even if it was at the expense of my own well-being. And in the long run, their well-being too, right? That's been another, this, this other thing I've noticed come up in relationships where I'm happy as long as I know they like me, right? Like me being liked and approved of is the priority, to the point that I won't even know how I feel because I'm so focused on whether I'm giving them what they want for me. Sometimes I'll realize later, and this is especially true in dating scenarios, I won't even like the guy that much, but him not liking and approving of me feels utterly debilitating. It's so gutting. But meanwhile, he's not that smart. He's not that emotionally intelligent. He's not that good in bed. He's not that attractive whatever the thing is like i don't like him he doesn't meet my needs but being liked and approved of and validated by an outside source has become so integral to my understanding of how love works that if i don't get that validation i fall apart so that's been another thing that i've really focused on working on another big thing has just been pretending i'm happy when i'm deeply fucking depressed like I've gone through dire bouts of suicidal ideation in my life, deep depressions. Like I found, this is like two days ago. I found some poems that I wrote when I was maybe like 27, 28, somewhere in there. And there was this one part of this one poem I wrote where, uh, and I'm paraphrasing the first part of this because I don't remember it exactly, but it was like, I'm not sad because of this thing. I'm not sad because of this thing. I'm sad because of, and this is the part that I wrote because of the dead woman in the dead woman in the dead woman inside me. Oh, Jesus. That's what I fucking wrote. What the fuck? I was just like, hi, cute on the outside, but like a Russian nesting doll of corpses on the inside,
0: (laughs) you know, fuck. Sounds like some intergenerational trauma there too.
1: I mean, big time. Yeah, I think
0: I was definitely tapping into that for sure.
1: And I think that's also part of this, right? Is like being so hyper aware of my mom's trauma. It did feel like that. It did feel like this goes so far back and it's so big, you know? But what I wanted to say is like, even during that time in my life, you know, when I wrote that poem and in so many of the other moments when I've been just completely fucked up in the head, If you watch my Insta story, if you were on my Facebook, whatever, even if you saw me in person, you'd think I was killing it, happy, successful, having fun on an adventure, you know, blah, blah. My job as a child was to always show a smiling face so that my mom wouldn't have to worry or stress about me. And so that, you know, maybe my dad would love me, which, you know, never worked with my dad. And I took that into adulthood big time. Like my job is to be happy at all times. Okay. So what's worked for me in terms of healing? I think there's a lot more exploration here for me. I still have a lot of healing to do, but the number one thing that I've been focusing on in this area has been becoming aware of my feelings and my needs, which sounds really basic and elementary, but when you were trained to focus on other people's emotions, You lose that connection to what's true for you. You don't know what your feelings are, or even if you have needs, much less what those needs might be. So, literally asking myself in any given situation, do I like this? Does this make me happy? Like, really happy? What are my needs in this situation or relationship? Are those needs being met? And then the next part is voicing when things aren't working. And that is so hard for those of us who didn't grow up with that. So I just want to acknowledge that. Literally, I remember when I was in my 20s. This is such a fucked up story. I was in my 20s. I was working at a consignment store in Berkeley. And I remember having this terrible anxiety when people would buy stuff because I would have to ask them to pay for it. (laughs) And I felt like, I was asking them to do something they would hate doing, right? Giving me their money to buy the things they wanted. Like, it's just so nuts and beyond codependent when I say it out loud. But basically, I would feel scared to ask them for their credit card because people hate parting with money. And I was nervous that they would be sad or upset that I needed to ring them up. Like, what are you even talking about? That's where I was with my trauma. The idea of upsetting other people was so upsetting for me. So that's just to say, if you can kind of relate to that, and now like you're out in the world trying to tell people when your feelings have been hurt or you're pissed or you're scared, they don't love you. (laughs) I see you, I hear you, I get it. It is so fucking hard to go from the kind of childhoods we had to just telling people that you're upset in some way. But the more you do it, I swear to you, the easier it becomes And if you're doing it with people worthy of your love and your time, it will make that relationship deeper and stronger in the end. And the last thing I'll say is tell people when you're struggling. This was a game changer for me. It was so freeing. You know, don't tell everyone, obviously, probably just like a lot of people out there who won't know how to handle it, but find at least one person to tell when you're having a depressive episode because you get to be loved even when you're in bad shape. You don't have to be cheery and helpful and upbeat to get love. And you don't have to be quiet and accommodating and agreeable. Nurture relationships with people who love you just as much on your dark days as they do on your joyful days. People who will listen to you when you're angry. I mean, you know, within reason, don't come at people guns blazing and being fucking disrespectful over and over and then expect people to stick around. You know, that's. Not fair, but look for people who can hear you say this really upset me and it really angered me without them getting mad at you or dismissing your feelings or trying to turn it around on you because those people really are your family. Okay, Amanda, how are you doing over there?
0: Great, thank you.
1: Okay, let me start with this question How does parentification affect our
0: ability? to have
1: healthy boundaries as adults?
0: Right, Um, such a good question. So the experience of being a parentified child who then grows up thrown out into this harsh world and grows (laughs) up to have relationships of their own and thinking about how that can affect their boundaries. Um, And it's important to note that when we grow up in this way, As an adult, we kind of come in to the world with kind of a skewed sense of what's normal and appropriate in relationships in terms of how much to give, how much to take, when to compromise, when we're over compromising, how much should we tolerate until we're able to say no or I'm not comfortable for this. It's really hard because we didn't get a good foundation. And so like for your experience, you had to work extra hard to find where the ground was and to think about what is normal and healthy and appropriate. Mm -hmm. So to answer this question fully, I just want to put it out there that when we talk about healthy boundaries, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm really so excited that in the last, I would say five to 10 years, you hear a lot of people talking about healthy boundaries more and more, which is great. But the truth is that healthy boundaries don't just happen. Setting healthy boundaries is hard work. It can be super awkward, super vulnerable, super vulnerable. Even if we practice, we're always going to be in a new situation and it's going to be really uncomfortable. So what we need fundamentally to set healthy boundaries is a solid foundation of self-worth, mm. meaning that our self-worth needs to be strong enough so that we truly believe that we are worthy and deserving of the things we're asking for, Oof. right? So that means that we need to value ourselves enough to take an honest assessment and inventory and to express our limits. And what we know from various studies on parentified children is that parentification is really correlated with low self-esteem. So if you can imagine... Um, coming from a place of low self-esteem and, and didn't get a chance to develop self-worth or our own identity that makes it so hard to set boundaries. So I really want to validate and normalize boundary setting is extra hard for adults who are parentified as kids. Mm. And then as you mentioned, there's not only the struggle with self-worth and we've attuned our instincts to kind of like blot out our instincts and to focus on someone else. So Mm. self-worth is needed for boundaries. So, you know, that Bette Midler song, like you are the wind beneath my wings. So it's like that self-worth is the wind beneath setting boundaries because we need that self-worth to carry us through the awkwardness and fucking discomfort of saying what we need and to help us push through the fear of those kind of awkward conversations. Even if we know okay, this talk is really uncomfortable, but I'm going to say my piece and I'm going to get what I need in the end. So we really need to cultivate self-love and self-worth and to know that even if us setting those boundaries causes the other person to be mad or get defensive or to flip us off or to leave us all together, that we're not going to fall apart, Mm. right? And I'm just going to say this for everyone. People who get their panties in a bunch, when we start setting boundaries, that's a sign that they have been taking advantage of the fact that we have not set up the boundaries before. Right. Right. So for everyone out there, myself included, who's experimenting with healthy boundaries, I just encourage you when you set a boundary with someone and you're like, ah, how's this going to go out? I encourage you to observe their reaction, but not to immediately react to their reaction. Right. Mm. So I just wanted to get that whole self-worth boundary piece out of the way.
1: Mm, I, I really like that. Observe their reaction.
0: Right. But don't react to their reaction. Is that what you said? Right. Right. So, for example, if I'm, you know, setting a boundary with you, Remy, like the most I can do and the best I can do is to like come into that conversation, kind of knowing what I want to say. I mean, I want to be firm, but not aggressive how you respond and react to that is completely out of my control, right? You could say, oh, Amanda, thank you so much. God, I didn't know. Let me give you a hug. You know, we could go out for tea, whatever. You could say, fuck you, you're, <laughs> you're ugly, you know? So whatever your reaction is, in a way, it's like, okay, it would suck if, if you had a negative reaction, but that doesn't change the fact that I still deserved to say my piece with you. Right. Yeah.
1: One thing I wanted to ask, and I know this is like, this is such a big question, but I think it's really important that we kind of zero in on like being parentified often leads to low self-esteem later down the road and like a lack of self-worth. And I know for me, that's absolutely 100%. That was my story. Like I I remember, and I've said this before on the pod, but like any time people were like, oh, you know, this is okay though, because I love myself. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? Like I had no, I felt so defective because in, like, I already felt defective. And then people would say like, would talk about self-love and self-worth. And it made me feel even more defective because I didn't know what that was. Mm-hmm. And I want to just ask this. It's like such a big question, but is there like, if we don't have self-worth, which I think often when we're abused in this way is how we show up into adulthood, you know, like we don't know how self-worth works. How, what, what, what do we do? <laughs> like, right. like, how do you build self-worth?
0: Right. No, that's a great question. That's another thing. Cause I hear people talking more and more about self-worth and self-love and it's like, great, And what does that look like and feel like and sound like in practice? And when you think about people who have had a rough start in life, it's that much harder. Um, It can look like a variety of ways. So, uh, um, and I'm just going to start with um, self-worth physically speaking on a physical level, we have to know that. I mean, I'm just going to bring it back to basics. We, we deserve to be hydrated and to put, Healthy foods in our body and to take those vitamins and gosh, I don't want to, but I need to make that dentist appointment. Mm. And it's important that I get my checkup and it's important that, you know, I kind of care for myself, um, in a way that, you know, normally a parent would care for us or teach us to care for ourselves. But, you know, that means that I do have to be mindful of how I'm taking care of my physical body. So, as a start, and giving myself exercise, and also being mindful of what I put into my senses. Like, mm. okay, sure, I watch some Netflix, but do I need to do that hours every day, every single night? Well, I think that's a little much. And come on, like, let's, let's time to go outside and get some fresh air. So, I think a big part of self worth is cultivating that inner voice of a wise, compassionate, loving, healthy caregiver. Mm-hmm. So when we're kids, like you said earlier, like your, your mom was your world, our parents are our world. So there's a certain amount of time when we're going up that the voice of our parents and the voice in our head or our inner dialogue is like one and the same, mm-hmm. right? So that could work out really well or that could work out disastrously. So if we are building up self-worth, it's so important to get in touch with our instinct. So for example, when you said being aware of your feeling and needs, making this self inquiry, how do I feel with this? How does my body responding? Mm. Do I like this? Do I want more? Do I need space? Mm. So really getting in touch with our messages on a gut level. So knowing it and then acting on it. So expressing it and like making that change. So you know, gosh, I went out with friends the last three nights and I'm actually kind of tired and I need to listen to my body because my body's uh, dealing with like a 72 hour hangover and also letting my friends know that I'm going to hang back tonight. And knowing that that doesn't mean that I'm terrible. And it doesn't mean that my friends are going to abandon me simply because I stated the need that I was able to tune into. Mm. Um, Self-worth also looks like well, here's the thing. As a kid, we, I mean, we didn't choose our families, right? Like, like that's just something we are like born into or thrown into. I mean, I don't know if you believe in like fate or karma, but let's just say you had no choice. You were born innocent into this world, right? So unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't work out well. The hope is that when we are adults, we can have more choices and autonomy and we can pick and choose who is going to spend time with us and who's worthy of us. So self-worth also looks like really cluing in to those people who are healthy and Mm. loving and accepting and respectful where the dynamics that we have with them are marked by reciprocity and a mutual give and take. Mm. Right. And of course, you know, we want to be around people who can be loving and, and uh, accepting of us and not constantly criticizing, you know, I mean, sometimes our friend is like, yo girl, slow your roll. And we're like, okay, I get you. Like, you're looking out for me, boo. But really we don't want to be hanging out with those people who make us feel like shit. Right. So, um, it's also self-worth is a matter of thinking about where we put our time and energy. So, um, those are some examples and also, and here's a thing of the times I think, and I know this is a little sticky, but thinking about our jobs. And where we invest our time and, you know, emotional, physical labor is really important too. And I know not everyone can do this, but, you know, if your job is really burning you out, if your boss is so demanding, if you're finding that other areas of your life are falling to the wayside because of this terrible job, that's like wage exploitation city, then sometimes if we're in a position to do so, self-worth looks like, you know what, that does not serve me anymore. I can, I deserve better. And maybe I need to line something else up so that I can find a better way to do that for myself.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for kind of walking through those, because I feel like so many of us and myself included coming into adulthood, I didn't have a model for any of those things. And so when people were like, yeah, but like, just like self-love girl, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I had an analogy before where I was like, it's like you know I told you oh well I'm in LA but I need to get to San Francisco so like I need I need to find a ride and people were like well if you just built a car from scratch <laughs> right then
0: you could get to Love San yours. Francisco just like start a gratitude journal <laughs> Yeah. It's namaste yeah and I was like I was like what
1: the fuck are you talking about I'm not going to build a car from scratch it's like the same thing to- for me, when people would be like, just self-love, I'd be like, I don't know what you're fucking talking about. Like, I don't know what that even means. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for walking through that. Cause I think it's so relevant to this topic. And then this other question that I have is, can you talk, I briefly mentioned this at the top, but I think there's, I don't know a ton about it. And I feel like there's more to learn about it, but um, can you talk about the concept of emotional incest a bit? Like, What is it and what kind of repercussions does it have for us later down the
0: road? Well, um, despite the word incest in here, it doesn't necessarily mean that things of a sexual nature are happening, but it does mean that a parent is overly depending on their child for the kind of support and closeness that is really um, only appropriate for an adult partner and not someone's own child. So, you know, thinking about the implications of emotional incest, it's kind of twofold here. Um, One is that there is an inappropriate level of emotional closeness where the parent is dependent on their kid in a way that really resembles more of a kind of romantic partner or spouse relationship. And then the second thing is that The parent also does not provide their kid with the support guidance, um, unconditional love, you know, or the, or other parts of the foundation of a healthy parent child relationship or healthy parent child boundaries. Mm. So with emotional incest, we have a double whammy that not only is the parent looking for the kid for a level of adult, like partner or spouse, like support but also the parent is not giving their kid the healthy and balanced parental support that the kid needs and deserves.
1: Can I ask before you go on just to clarify are any of the examples I gave examples of emotional incest or what does it
0: look like? I okay so for the examples you gave of emotional incest, well the part where your mom was, you know, really just having a meltdown mm-hmm. and kind of like Gushing about her relationship problems, like why don't people love me? Why isn't there a man who loves me? Mm. um you know that kind of a thing, so you that know you is- can almost replace you know you know you with like dad, like dad would have been the one for that would be the the person for her to like put all that on mm. so
1: I'm just curious. Cause it's like, it feels like, you know, if you're throwing the word incest around, I want to be sure that I know, like, what does that mean? What is that? What does it look like when we're talking about it? But it's interesting in that example too, because I remember, I'm, I remember my response was I'll, I'll take care of you. I'll be the one who loves you. I'll, I'll be like a husband to you. Right. And, um, yeah, like what the fuck? I was a five-year-old her five-year-old daughter, like thinking that I'm yeah. going to try to be her husband. It's that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay.
0: I do want to get a little bit more specific about the emotional incest piece. So it's really the parent looking for the kid to meet their emotional needs. Um, really having the kid act like their partner or, or, you know, trying to take the role of a spouse or, it's a little bit different, but you hear this a lot with people who are parentified. Parents who are like acting more like best friends with their mm. kid, you mm. know. So, so a parent may depend on their kid to keep them company when the parent is lonely or sad and doesn't have other meaningful outside relationships or friendships. And I, you know, parentification, emotional incest—that is all so much more common with an absent partner or uh, estrangement or divorce, where there's an absence, um, that's a situation where, well, studies show that parentification is more likely to happen there. Mm. So parents can also look for their kid, um, sometimes for the financial support or complaining or talking about money matters and financial worries with the kid, but that's really more appropriate for you know something you would talk to your partner about. Mm. So for example, when your mom, I mean, my heart goes out to her struggling as a single parent, but also putting that, I mean, that just must've been so stressful and scary for you. So yeah, she was used, parents who use kids for advice on personal matters. So, you know, we can think of examples, like maybe a mom gets into a fight with a boyfriend and is processing that fight with the kid. Mm-hmm. Instead of with the boyfriend, right? Or a dad maybe venting about a conflict with a boss and worries about losing his job and venting that to the kid when that's something that ideally he would be talking with a loving partner with. So, something in common that I hear from people who grew up with this dynamic is, you know, again, divorced parents or parents that don't get along. And essentially, the remaining parent will talk shit about the other parent consistently to their kid and or demands loyalty from their kid against the other parent. Oh fuck. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. So, essentially the parent would seek out their child to be their staunch ally mm-hmm. and to be loyal to them against the other parent through, you know, this parent venting and trash talking. And another thing that we really see is a parent falling apart emotionally, you know, with the kid present so that the kid is put in a position of comforting and soothing and reassuring the parent, I'm on your side. God. Okay. So basically my whole child. (laughs) Yeah, really. That's what I meant where I'm like, you're, what you shared like really uh, matches up. And Mm -hmm. is it, can I share an example? Yeah, please. Um, You know, and this is just a composite example. It's not any one particular person. Right. So one example is let's say a girl because daughters are more likely to be parentified than sons Mm. as are the eldest children. Mm. Okay. So one example is a girl with divorced parents who grows up with a single mother, who's an alcoholic. Now the mom herself ran away from home as a young teen. So we can be very certain that there was a lot of trauma for mom there. And you know, the mom and the dad had a very bitter breakup. And after that breakup, the girl and the mom became super close to the point of codependence and emotional incest. And what would happen is that the mom would date guys and then literally talk to her daughter about how good or bad they were in bed and how big their dicks were, right? Stuff that you can imagine. Okay. Yeah. I could talk with a friend about, but it's really inappropriate to tell your child of any age plus, you know, you, um, and moreover, you know, the mom eventually to her credit got sober, but before then She would get blackout drunk and then daughter would have to take care of mom, like cleaning up her vomit, putting her in the shower, Mm. not knowing whether to call 911. So super scary stuff. And then through the custody battle with the parents, the mom would constantly talk bad about the dad, like even accusing the dad of sexually abusing the daughter, even though the daughter had confirmed, no, that did not happen. Mm. But during that custody battle, the mom had a huge emotional breakdown and the girl had a moment where she literally had to step up and say, I need to be the voice of reason. And she had to comfort mom. And she really felt forced to say, it's okay, mom, I I love you more than dad. I'm going to I'm going to say that I want to live with you. Right. So at the time, you know, did it temporarily soothe mom? Well, you know, maybe a little bit, but it's a very haunting and traumatic memory for this young girl who grew up today. So that was an extreme example, but it really illustrates a couple of ways that the really destructive type of role reversal can manifest where it means that the boundaries are very blurred or non-existent and where you lose your parental support while you also lose a lot of your childhood
1: Wow. A lot of, um, my mom never talked about dick size with me. Thank God. Um, mm-hmm. but she did. I remember like she had a boyfriend once and she like showed us the lingerie that she had bought, um, that she, and then she like told me she would she was like planning a sexy surprise for him and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so there was stuff like that where, yeah, I did. And, and, and I want to say like, it's so interesting because at the time it was those exact behaviors that made me feel like my mom and I were so close. Like I was like, this Mm -hmm. is how, this is what love looks like. And I think it was in part because my dad, and I'm saying this in case anyone can relate. My dad was so shut down that it was like, um, it was like, I got no intimacy from him. And so this felt like amazing. Like my mom is just, she just is open and so open. And she treats me like she'll tell me anything, right? Like um, it felt like water to my desert that, that this, you know, this dad desert Mm -hmm. that I had. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I, it's really helpful to understand what emotional incest is because having the language around what happened to us and that, that knowing, again, I think this type of abuse specifically is so covert that for me, I came into my twenties, having no idea that I had been so deeply abused Mm -hmm. and having no understanding of why I was so depressed and so sensitive and like. in so much pain. So I feel Mm -hmm. like I, it's important to me to have language and know like, this is what this means. And this is what it looks like. So we can be firm in our knowing of what happened. Um, and speaking of my Mm twenties, how, how does parentification affect our relationships as
0: adults? So let me back this up. All relationships, all adult relationships have an aspect of give and take, right? No relationship is perfectly mutual 100% of the time. You know, maybe one week I'm sick and my partner's taking care of me so I can rest and maybe the next week they're working. So I need to like do more around the house, right? So things like that are normal for the situation. And the hope is that once the circumstance ends, that the dynamic returns to something that is more or less reciprocal and functional and satisfactory, but where we run into trouble in adult relationships when one or more people have been parentified is when we find ourselves thrown back into that ongoing pattern. That's again, fundamentally imbalanced where whether we're conscious of it or not, we might be acting like the adult partner in the relationship where the other person falls into the less mature role or maybe the childlike role. Mm -hmm. And when this happens, there's always resentment, always resentment, seething and building over time. And actually both people can be resentful where, for example, the more mature partner is going to feel frustrated and exhausted. They've given so much they're bending over backwards. They're angry at their partner for not having their shit together And the less mature partner might feel controlled by their partner or lament. Oh, uh, you know, they're judging me. They're not giving me room to grow. They expect me to like have it all figured out right now. Mm -hmm. So if we find ourselves yet again, taking on this parentified role, but this time in an adult relationship, that means that I'm consciously or subconsciously taking on the parent or caregiver role and you know, Therefore, that means that my significant other is filling the role of the child or the role of the meeker person or the role with greater needs that I'm trying to fill and I'm trying to meet while at the same time downplaying my own needs. Mm-hmm. So another um, just composite example is I know a woman who's been in a long-term hetero relationship and she recently realized hey, I've been mothering my partner for all of his adult life. So for so long, he's literally signed over his paychecks to her so that she can deposit them into her bank account because he doesn't have his own bank account. And money's been tight. So she's been having to make all the financial decisions. It's been a growing burden on her because he'll spend money on whatever he wants without checking in. And then he leaves her to deal with the stress and the debt. And she doesn't say anything. Uh, moreover, um, he's never gotten his GED. So she finds herself really over time nagging him and begging him, please do that for yourself. You know, you know you're so talented. We need to bring in more money for the household. But when she tries to get him to do that, he really resists and shuts down. And I wouldn't be surprised if he would be internally questioning why does she have to control me? You know, why can't she just accept me as I am? So you see um, in that example, there's kind of like the more adult person in that relationship, the more um, I'll call it less mature or, you know, childlike role. But really, it's not ideal for either party. Mm -hmm. Right. So as we mentioned before, um, parentification really affects adult relationships in all kinds of ways, right? Blurred boundaries, you know, maybe even a meshment. Um, maybe some people avoid intimacy. Some people have this overwhelming sense of responsibility. There's also aspects of lost childhoods, right? Cause we didn't get to be the kid. We didn't get to play. We didn't get to make mistakes or play and grow or explore. We didn't have that. And as, What often happens in adulthood is there's these communication barriers, right? Um, Difficulty expressing emotions, difficulty being aware of our emotions, and then difficulty expressing them. Mm. Um, And that means that a lot of people are conflict avoidant. They are people pleasers. So it's super hard to understand and express their needs. Um, In addition, we talked about before that concept of low self esteem and self worth, and feeling really insecure. And uh, I don't know this for sure, but I really got a hunch that parentified kids grow up and they have higher rates of addiction as well.
1: That makes sense.
0: Yeah, right. Um, because we're looking for self soothing somewhere. And whether that's through a drug or sex or, you know, lottery, like whatever it is, we're going to seek it out because we're only human and we're all trying to get closer to comfort, love, and acceptance. And we're all trying to avoid hurt and pain and rejection and abandonment. Mm. So we're good. I know we're going to get into it more, but I just really wanted to highlight some of those themes about those big ways that um, parentification and emotional incest follows us into adulthood.
1: Oh my God. That's so helpful. And like, I was tracing a lot of the ways that that has shown up for me. I feel like, I don't think I ever thought of it as caretaking in relationships. I think I just thought like, I'm loving, (laughs) like I give and that resentment that you're talking about when you give and give, and then you feel like other people don't give back. It is like, it's so, um, I don't know if you've ever seen Clue. But when she's like flames on the side of my face, he- heaving flames, that's what it feels like for me. It's like, ah, uh, like oh. I'm giving so much and I'm not getting in return. And it's like, it feels like insanity. It feels crazy. Like this mm. crazy rage inside of me. I super relate to that. Uh huh. And I'm also curious about um, in your experience, like what are the most common ways that parentification affects us Outside of relationships and boundary setting, are there other ways
0: that it shows up? Yeah, yeah, definitely there are. so okay, um, sadly, but not surprisingly, um, parentification like I'm talk like I'll call it um pathological parentification where it really did damage that can affect people and kids at various stages of development. so for example, parentification is correlated with attention problems and behavioral problems, mm-hmm. um, difficulty socializing, difficulty making friends in school-aged children. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also a landmark study in 1999 that found that parentification is linked to depression, anxiety, and low self-esteem. Other studies have linked it to hardships informing your identity, meaning mm-hmm. Who am I? What do I value? What do I like? What do I dislike? Right. So kind of thinking about young adulthood, those big questions coming up as we're exploring the world. So for a young adult who didn't get a chance to have a solid foundation to then go on to answer those questions, um, that happened because they were preoccupied with the burden of being an adult in a child's body. Mm. So something that's really interesting is that um, when parentification happens between a father and a daughter, there's a very high incidence of disordered eating there among the daughters.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Right. So if if anyone's listening out there and that really, ooh, that really resonates, that hits home, I just want to offer this as something like where you're not alone, where there is a correlation where fathers have parentified their daughters and the daughters growing up to having an imbalanced relationship with food. Huh. Yeah. Fascinating. Do they know why that is? Um, in one sense, disordered eating, you know, are we talking about calories and nutrition and eating your greens and blah, blah, blah. I mean, sure. That's one layer, but Um, In my opinion, and I don't consider myself an expert in disordered eating, it's about how we are soothing ourselves and where we're getting, how we are nourishing ourselves, not on a physical level, but how we are getting our nourishment emotionally. And also what we know about disordered eating, again, not an expert, is that a lot of times it comes down to want um, the person wanting a sense of control. If the outside world, if, if the external um, factors are like, well, I have no control, I don't have choice, I'm powerless, mm-hmm. fuck, I'm a kid. It's not like I can like 15 years old, like rent my own apartment. Um, then we're going to try to seek control, AKA comfort any way we can. And if you could think of a kid who doesn't have a lot of choice and is in like a really um, unhealthy parent dynamic, What are the things that I can control? I can control what I put into my body. Mm, That's so interesting. Yeah. So other ways that parentification affects us, and you hit the nail on the head earlier, it makes it that much harder for us to acknowledge and express emotions, particularly quote unquote negative emotions like anger, sadness, disappointing, it makes it really hard to recognize and express when we are feeling burnt out, mm. right? That tends to be harder for per, uh, parentified people. And this notion that I have to be the strong one, I have to be the responsible one, the reasonable one, the rational one, the problem solver, the fixer, the doer, you know, the idea that I have to have it all figured out or Fuck, I should have help, had it already all figured out. So, those are all huge blocks for the understanding and expression of our true emotions. Mm-hmm. So, what I notice um, in folks who have been parentified, you know, they believe they have to shoulder all the burdens by themselves because they don't want to worry others. So, I'll hear a lot of things like, I don't cry, or, Yeah. I I cry maybe a few tears once a year, you know, if I'm watching a sad movie, you know, so a lot of, um, a lot of blocks, a lot of like boundaries against releasing our emotions. So we would call that the, the tendency for decreased emotionality, Mm. having blocks against emotional release can come in really strong here. Another thing that we can encounter Um, Again, the idea that we always have to be strong and totally capable, that bleeds into perfectionism and people-pleasing, right? Right. So because parentified children are forced to really meet high standards from a young age, it's also very likely, it usually means that they would face really harsh criticism and judgment and rejection from the actual parents, um, this pressure to act maturely. So the message really is, I've got to get it right every time, mm. or I've got to step in and keep the peace when people are arguing. Oh, shit. So that's another thing. I find that folks who have been parentified will self-identify in their family as the peacekeeper, the mediator, the moderator, the negotiator, the translator, you know, people feeling like they need to really step in and handle conflict and misunderstandings. So yeah, fuck. We got the three P's, parentification, perfectionism, and people-pleasing. The trifecta. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I definitely, definitely was the one who was the peacekeeper in the family. I, that was like, I remember one time there was like a huge fight between my mom and my sister. And this was when I was Uh, probably like 26. I can't remember 27. And I don't remember the specifics, but I ended up having to drive. No, I did not have to do shit. I wasn't even involved in the issue, but I was like, they were so mad at each other because of a, set of keys that some, I think my mom accidentally took my sister's keys and my sister needed them to get into her car, her house or something. And my mom, instead of apologizing and being like, let me bring you your keys, w- like was mad at my sister for something. And I was like, I will drive the keys to Q. I will do it. Let me sleep in. Yeah. Let me step in and fix this so that no one has to be mad at anyone. And I remember at the time I was in Al-Anon which for anyone who's not familiar, it's a 12 step program for um, friends and family of alcoholics. And I remember my sponsor was like, oh, interesting. Why, why did you do that? I was like, to to me, doing stuff like that was my source of, that's how I got love and approval in my family. Mm -hmm. I was like, what do you mean why? I did a Mm -hmm. really nice thing. I'm really nice. I'm really good. And she was like, sounds to me like you blew your whole night off And spent a bunch of money on gas and sat in traffic because of something that had nothing to do with you. And I was like, oh shit. Um, so yes, I super, I super relate to that. So thank you for going through those. And it brings me to my next question. Mm -hmm. What have been some of the things that have been most successful in helping your clients heal from the effects of paranification? Like, how the fuck do we fix this?
0: Right, right. Uh, Well, there. This is such a great question. There's so much to say. So I would start with the idea of being your own best caregiver. And the reason I like the word caregiver rather than parent is because for folks with parent trauma, the P word is just too loaded. So Mm -hmm. I like to keep it more general with caregiver. So stepping up to be your own best caregiver now, to be the kind of healthy adult you needed back then. Is absolutely key to healing from parentification. So, what does this mean? So, our own best caregiver, the ideal caregiver is someone compassionate, balanced, unconditionally loving. You know, you can show up mad, angry, sad, whatever, I will still love you. You don't have to smile and be good for me to love you. Um, A caregiver is patient, dependable, supportive. They see our value. And they want us to put our gifts and strengths to good use, but yet they would never take advantage of us. So, being our own best caregiver means to have insight and knowledge into who we are and how much we're capable of without overextending ourselves, AKA a boundary. So, it is someone with good enough boundaries where we can say to ourselves, if I'm being my own best caregiver, I'm going to soothe myself by saying, wow, you know, this is really fucking stressful, but you know what? I'm here for you. I'm going to help you figure this out, you know? And at other times, maybe that internal caregiver would be like, you know what? Your judgment's good. I trust you. And I'm going to give you time and space to figure this out. I'll be over here if you need. Mm -hmm. So it helps a lot to get really clear to, to start. If we don't know where to start with being our own best caregiver, it helps to get really clear on a person, real, you know, could be fictional, or even an archetype of a wise and loving person, and to use that as a guide. For some people, it really helps to think of their kids, their nieces, their nephew, their pets, and it helps them to say, "Let me be the kind of loving, caregiving person that that person needs." So for example, I have clients who struggle with being their own best caregiver, right? Not given the blueprint for it, not their fault. And people, of course, struggle with negative self-talk. So it's a lot more natural for those people to say, oh, let me think of my niece. If I wouldn't say it to her, I'm sure as hell not gonna say it to me, Mm. right? Um, It's also helpful thinking about, we need to acknowledge that our instincts back then were correct. Meaning, Remy, I'm sure there were times in those memories you said where, ooh, in your gut, probably something you knew something was off. And kids are very in touch with their gut, but kids don't always have the words to express it. And even if kids, and when I mean kids, I I could mean a child, an adolescent, whatever. Even if kids do have the words, they don't always have the power the resources, the choices, or the safety to do that because they can't change the situation. So kids who are parentified may have come from a situation where you having to survive day by day or to avoid punishment meant that you had to stuff your instincts or emotions and numb them out. And that was a survival tool. So for those people out there, you're like, wow, ooh, you know what? Bless, like you did survive, right? If you're listening to this, you're alive. So that did help you get through an awful situation. And now you're an adult. Now you can be your own best caregiver and surround yourself with, el- with other healthy people. You don't have to continue to do that anymore, right? So one of the tactics of a parent who parentifies their child is gaslighting them when they express themselves or you know, pushing back, saying things like, You're being a brat, get over it. You're just being selfish when the kid expresses a need or a displeasure. So if you can imagine the kid, you know, you finally work up the guts to express yourselves and the parent comes at you with that kind of garbage. So that's really gonna get internalized in your child mind. So, you know, then we have a conflict. With the child's instincts of, wow, something's not right versus the messages that they're getting externally. So then the internalized coping with the child is, I don't wanna cause trouble. I'm bad if I say a need. I I can't trust that I know what I need. I just need to keep the peace. I don't wanna rock the boat. I need to make myself as small as possible, right? So peeling back the layers of those false core beliefs. And getting back in touch with our instincts, our wisdom, our gut reactions is so vital for parentification um, and healing from that. Also, it helps to acknowledge that also for other people, they didn't know what was normal and what wasn't, right? I mean, who does? I mean, we're born into our families, you know, and for a certain amount of time, we don't really have a reference for where the line is of what's acceptable and not. So a lot of the times I hear from folks, something like, I grew up thinking that my family's dysfunction was normal or like somewhat normal. And you hear that it's only when they started getting a little older and hanging out with other families and seeing friends with their parents where they're like, oh, well, wait a minute. That's way different. Is that how parents are supposed to be with their kids? So I don't know who needs to hear this, but if you as a kid didn't really know what was normal and what was not, that wasn't your fault, right? And there's nothing that you did or didn't do as a child to warrant or justify your parent laying these undue burdens and responsibilities on you without giving you support. And of course, I think we can really understand that the parents themselves were hurt as kids and that hurt never got got to be healed. So sadly, their children are really in the fallout zone. So you as a child simply were not born with an accurate frame of reference for what was normal and acceptable. And it wasn't your fault that you didn't understand what was okay and what wasn't.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that because I relate to that deeply. Yeah, I really love that you brought in gaslighting Mm -hmm. because- um, you know, part of this for me, not for everyone, but part of this for me is narcissism. And similarly, in narcissism, there's a lot of gaslighting. And like, it's funny that you said the word brat because actually, one time, uh, my dad literally, I, I had a blog as, as one does in 2008, or whatever year it was. Uh huh. And I wrote a post about, um, I had had an experience where I'd hooked up with this guy and it seemed like it was fine. But a week later, like he didn't call me or text me, and I was like, okay, whatever. And then a week later, he sent me an email that just said, I hate you. Oh, God. That was all it said. And I was so excited. I mean, I wasn't happy about it, but there was a part of it that was exciting for me because my experience with my dad had been, I don't care about you. So someone who hated me, you got a reaction. Yeah. I was like, Ooh, why? You know, like, Ooh, exciting. And then I was like, wow, this is fucked up. And I wrote a blog post and was like, yeah, you know, when you have um, an abusive dad, who's like emotionally shut down and kind of like raises you to feel like you don't matter. Having a guy come out and say, I hate you. Like, you it is kind of it's an upgrade in a way and that's really fucked and you know my dad's from a really small town some lady from the small town found my blog and she you know got all gossipy and sent it to him and was like remy's telling lies about you and whatever and my dad sent me this long i don't know how long it was but it was vitriolic. And it was this letter that was like, you are a brat. You're such a fucking brat. You've always been a My brat. God. And so anyway, that's not to like, um that's just to give an example of kind of how this looks this gaslighting certainly I've talked a lot on the pod about ways that um I've tried to express feelings to my mom and she's like shut it down really fast Mm. so I it's I think it's so important that we like shed some light on that because I wasn't even aware that that was a part of this dynamic and I think it's really important that we understand that gaslighting plays a role because it is so traumatizing to be gaslit as a rule Mm -hmm. growing up you know Yeah.
0: yeah Well, in a way from the parents point of view, it serves them to gaslight their kids because then the focus remains on them. Right Yeah. 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 So just to say a little more about um, this question about kind of like healing moving forward. So I find that like literally making a list and really sitting down and clarifying what I would call the red flags Mm -hmm. or even the yellow flags of the parentified relationship So what that means is as an adult now, whether we're thinking about a romantic relationship, a work relationship, a friendship, whatever, it means that I'm going to consciously reflect on that past parentified dynamic and that dysfunction. And I'm going to get super clear on what that looked like, what that felt like, what that sounded like, how my body felt. And I'm going to look maybe at overall patterns And I'm also going to really clue into specific memories for information, and I'm going to brainstorm. And I'm—I swear—I think there's so much power in making a list, seeing it in your your own handwriting or whatever, you know, um, typing it up on your iPhone, like whatever. It's really brainstorming and making a list of those red flags, and that's really powerful because now that we are the adult, we've been through that awful situation, so we can look. In hindsight, and take those hard earned lessons with us into the future, because that's going to help protect ourselves and to, you know, set us up to have healthier, balanced, sustainable relationships moving forward. And again, this really comes back to trusting our gut. Really, we do not gaslight ourselves. We do not distract ourselves. We do not minimize ourselves. Maybe we did that for a while, but that's not a cute look anymore. So, you know, the tricky part is that when we're parentified as kids, we're literally trained, we're literally socialized to push our own needs aside to meet the needs of others. And maybe that means that we do that to avoid punishment or to avoid criticism or to stay in the good graces. So because sometimes the, the thinking and the internal narrative gets skewed, this is where it's so vital to notice how the body feels. Because I could, I don't know about you, Remy. I could talk myself in and out of all shit all day. Yeah. But if I really were to sit and pause and like take a breath, like take a fucking vitamin, tune in with my body, that's going to tell me undeniable information. Mm. You know, so for example, maybe I'm in an adult relationship where again, I'm over caring for my partner financially. And maybe I'm not sure, is this normal? I'm just helping them out. Or, you know, this isn't so bad. I can handle it. But wow, ooh, my chest. Is super tight, and I'm losing sleep, and I'm having migraines, and my poops are weird. So you see how even if our thoughts get muddled, our body is communicating to us. So getting in touch with our bodies is—it's a really good first step for folks Mm -hmm. who haven't gotten a chance to practice yet. And um, really key here, because we lost out on large swaths of the childhood experience, it's helpful to do things like play be silly, be a kid, eat junk food. You basically want to reclaim the experiences of childhood that you never got to have. And again, if we're not sure, you know, where to start or what does that look like? My advice is start with a sensory experience. Mm -hmm. So for example, let's say, um, you were parentified starting age 10, which coincidentally is about the time parents got divorced and it's 1995. So I would say to that person, let's explore the things that you had enjoyed in and around that time, like activities, music, food, movies, clothes, toys, et cetera. And I encourage them to recreate that experience in a way that brings back pleasure on their own terms. Mm-hmm. So maybe for that person, they're gonna put together a playlist of 90s jams. You know, you got your Mariah, you got your Whitney, you got your no doubt, whatever. You go to the roller skating rink with your friends. It doesn't matter if you're 30, you watch Clueless, you buy yourself that Barbie. You know what? Like these things matter. And what I've noticed is I've had people report back a lot of success and joy doing this kind of sensory reclamation of childhood. In a way that really surprised them. So basically what you want to do is now as the adult, as the caregiver, you give yourself the healthy, pleasurable, youthful experience now that you were deprived of then. And that is also an illustration of self-love and self-compassion and it means that therefore you are starting to be your own best caregiver and that is a building block of building up self-worth.
1: Oof, I love that so much because as adults, I think as adults in like this hyper capitalist culture that we live in, mm-hmm. there is there's all this emphasis on productivity and like Um, working and achieving and accomplishing and goal goal setting, you know, and all this stuff. And I think, like, for me, um, that's been a huge thing where I, I just have like, like, I go to karaoke as much as I possibly can. I take trips, Mm -hmm. you know, little day trips, like I really, I go to the creek, I live in a beautiful place where there's, you know, there are creeks around and I Mm -hmm. like, I insist on joy and I've, there have absolutely been times where I felt really guilty about that. And I don't think I ever, no I, no, I have not ever thought about that as sort of reparenting myself or mm-hmm. caretaking in any way. I've just been like, this is what I want to do. And I just feel so strongly about it, but now it's making so much sense. Yeah, no shit. Of course. That's what I want to do. I. I was so stressed out as a kid and I, and another thing was I was so good at hiding it. I was so Mm -hmm. good at pretending like everything was just fine. You know, like I had a corn on my foot that made it so that I could barely walk and no one knew. I wouldn't tell anyone because I was just like, my job is to look happy all the time. You know, Uh when inside I was like, I remember When I was 10, I started getting debilitating stomach aches. I did not tell a single person. I told Mm -hmm. no one because that's not how I got love. I got love by just being happy all the time. So I I love this idea of reincorporating joy as a way of reparenting ourselves Mm -hmm. and like play as as Mm -hmm. like being a good loving caretaker for yourself. Yes, joy. It's so important. It's so it's we missed it and we get to have it now so i really love that you brought that back in and i have absolutely loved this conversation so much with you amanda this is just like oh. you you've brought in so much oh, thanks such a wonderful conversation if people want to get a hold of you where can they find you
0: sure um i have a website for my private practice it's www. Alchemy mental wellness.com.
1: Yay. Awesome. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party, or you can email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, def hit me up. The next episode is on feeling like you're too much. And that's because someone DM'd me with that topic. Shout out to Joanna. So definitely let me know. I read every email and I like totally take those into consideration. And also if this pod has helped you and you have a minute rate review, subscribe, it makes a huge difference. And it honestly means so much to me, like literal tears in my eyes, but not depresso tears, happy, joyful, playful tears, more of those tears, please. And yeah, until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye.